Well, this is now our third week in the book of Jonah. We've basically spent one week in each of the first two chapters, bringing us to chapter three. And I I wonder if you are seeing more to this book than you initially thought was there. I've been hearing that from several people, and of course, that's that's why we slow down and, and work through these books one part at a time. And it leads me to ask this question, what is the main message of the book of Jonah? What's the main reason this book was written? Is it mainly about the miracle of the great fish, or is it about something else? Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. You can find it on page 860 of the Pew Bible, very near the end of the Old Testament, just eight short books to the left of Matthew, you can find Jonah. We'll be looking at all of chapter 3, but I'm going to begin by reading the first half aloud. We'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord to you. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word to us. By the Holy Spirit, apply your word to our hearts that we may respond, that we may live according to that word. Bless the preaching of your word in and for the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, turning again to where we left off last week in the second half of verse 3. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Well, at the very least, to describe it as an exceedingly great city is to say that it was very large, at least for cities of that time in history. We'll see in chapter 4 that it had a population of at least 120,000 people, so quite large for the time. This phrase, an exceedingly great city, it could also be intended to communicate not just that it was large in size, but that it was important to God. Literally, it reads, it was a great city to God. After all, he made it. Every resident of the city was brought into existence by the will of God, formed in their mother's womb by him and for him, that they might seek him and worship him. And he was sending his prophet to warn them of his judgment, and thus to call them to himself. The meaning of the description, a three days journey in breadth, that last last part's a bit unclear. Literally, it just reads a three day journey. But what does that mean for a city to be a three day journey? Well, from the ruins of this ancient city, which lie just outside of Mosul, Iraq, it's hard to see how it could have taken three whole days. To simply walk from one end to the other, the city proper simply wasn't that wide across. So then this phrase must mean that it was expected either that it would take three days to preach on every street corner such that all the people would hear, or that it would take three days to get through the red tape necessary 
to gain access to the heart of such a major diplomatic center of the ancient world, the Assyrian Empire. Or that it would take three days to encircle the greater Nineveh region. That greater Nineveh region, the city surrounding it, is referred to as, quote, that great city in Genesis chapter 10 when the founding of it is described. It was settled by Noah's great-grandson, Nimrod. But regardless, the point of our text is clear. What should have taken a three-day journey didn't. Because something amazing happened the moment Jonah opened his mouth to share the word of God with the people he encountered the first day. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. This verse depicting the, the immediacy, the intensity, and the inclusivity of their response to the word of God is the central focus, not just of chapter 3, but of the entire book of Jonah. It's here that the main message of the book is found. You see, the book is not about the whale, it's about the word. First, there is the immediacy of their response. Nothing is recorded regarding Jonah preaching on a second or third day, as he had planned. It seems the people's response rendered Jonah's three-day mission unnecessary. The text implies that those who heard the word, believed the word, and immediately began spreading the word themselves. Look at how verse 6 begins. The word reached the king of Nineveh. It doesn't say that Jonah made his way to the king, but that the word Jonah had proclaimed made its way to the king. And the king arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation. So just like the others, the king heard the word, believed the word, and immediately began to spread the word himself. And what was that word? Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. It's only five words in the Hebrew. The most serious and urgent five words that any of these people had ever, ever heard. They had 40 days to live. It was less than six weeks until their destruction. Overthrown is the same word that was used to describe the dreadful judgment of God that he brought down upon the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah more than a thousand years earlier. For a city to be overthrown meant utter destruction. This word of judgment was proclaimed, verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. It doesn't say they believed Jonah, does it? They believed God. To believe the word of God spoken through his prophets is to believe God. To disbelieve the word of God spoken through his prophets is to disbelieve God. And there is no hope of deliverance for those who refuse to hear and believe. Only destruction. The immediacy of their response speaks to the direness of the circumstances of the unforgiven sinner. So too does the intensity and the inclusivity of their response. They call for a fast and put on sackcloth. That's part of the intensity. From the greatest of them to the least of them, that's part of the inclusivity. 
Verse 6, the word reached even the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. From the poorest street beggar dressed in torn rags to the king adorned in a royal robe, there was an all-inclusive response. They all heard the word of God's judgment. They all cried out to him for mercy. They all put on sackcloth. That's the clothing of a street beggar. It's a coarse cloth, often made from goat's hair. It's all that the poor could afford. And it was customary for those who were in mourning to dress themselves in this way, whether they were, were grieving over the loss of a loved one or whether they were grieving, as in this case, over their sin and its consequences. It was an expression of being poor in spirit, a humble beggar coming before a holy God. And as for the ashes, well, all are from the dust, and to dust all return, Ecclesiastes 3.20. To sit on a heap of ashes is to declare, I know that I live or die according to your will, O God. I deserve to be burned up in judgment. Lord, spare my life that I may not die on this heap of ashes. So all of this, whether the putting on the sackcloth, the sitting in ashes, the fasting from food and drink, all of this is about denying oneself, putting off earthly comforts and pleasures that are passing away. Acknowledging before God that such comforts and pleasures are undeserved. Acknowledging before God that life itself is undeserved and is utterly dependent upon God's mercy and grace. The sackcloth, the ashes, the fasting all give expression to this cry of mercy. Even their livestock were covered with sackcloth and were made to go without food and drink so that their cries would combine with the cries of the people in one great cacophony of desperation. All of this speaks to the direness of the sinner's plight. All of this is absolutely appropriate. But it's not the sackcloth or the ashes or fasting from food and drink that is pointed to as the reason for God's relenting from the destruction they deserve. It's the next part of the king's decree and of the people's response. In verse 8, quote, Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. When God sends a prophet to pronounce judgment upon a people, it's understood to be an offer of mercy if they will repent of their evil, self-serving ways. As I read two weeks ago, hear how God explains it in his own words in Jeremiah 18. He says this, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turn from its evil, that is, if it repents, I will relent of the disaster I intended to do to it. If they repent, 
I will relent. As we discussed last week, as we examined the eventual long-delayed response of Jonah that led to his deliverance in the fish, genuine repentance always begins with the kind of cry for mercy that then leads to a transformed life. When you truly turn to God for deliverance, you are turning from your life of disobedience. That's repentance. You see, it is possible. It's possible to grieve over the judgment that your sins demand, to grieve over the pronounced judgment, and to cry out for mercy without grieving over your sin, without grieving over the way you have dishonored your holy God. That's the difference between what is called worldly grief and godly grief. Worldly grief flows from the desire to please yourself. Godly grief flows from a desire to please God. Worldly grief is consumed with yourself and what you love rather than with God and what he loves. The Apostle Paul writes of this. He, he wrote to the church in Corinth regarding some sinful behavior that the church had been tolerating within their midst and that he had rebuked them for in an earlier letter. And We read this in 2 Corinthians 7. Paul writes, As it is, I rejoice over my letters, your response to my letter, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief. For a godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief produces death. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, the Lord condemns the people of Israel for their worldly grief over the pronouncement of coming judgment for their sins. They grieve, but they grieve wrongly. In Isaiah 58, the people point to the fact that they have dressed in sackcloth. The Israelites are saying, look, we dressed in sackcloth. We sat in ashes. We fasted from food and drink. But God does not hear their cry. Hear these words from Isaiah 58. These people seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They say, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast? In a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To let the oppressed go free? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked to cover him? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn. And your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call. And the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. He's saying, repent, and I will relent. Godly grief is of such a kind that while crying out for mercy, it also says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. 
Don't just put off your fine clothing and put on sackcloth. Put off your evil self-serving ways and put on compassion for others. Don't just get off your throne and sit on a heap of ashes. Get up and serve others. Don't just fast from food and drink. Fast from failing to love your neighbor as yourself. Not as a means of earning God's mercy, then it would cease to be mercy. No, we're talking about the kind of brokenness over your sin. The kind of contrition and sorrow and grief that then naturally leads to a changed heart and a changed life. Genuine repentance. I mentioned earlier that the the main message of this book is found not in the account of the fish in chapter 2, but on account of the word that was proclaimed and believed in chapter 3. You see, after all these things took place, they were recorded in a book that we are now reading. So we must ask, to whom was this book of Jonah written? Not to the Ninevites. It wasn't received by them. It wasn't handed down from one generation of Ninevite to another. No, it was written to Israel. It was handed down from one generation of Israelite to another as a word of condemnation against them, like most of the rest of the Old Testament. Consider the contrast being presented between the pagan Ninevites and the religious Israelites. The Israelites had received God's special revelation spoken through the five books of Moses. And by the time of Jonah, through several other books as well, Joshua, Judges, Samuel. And how had the people of Israel responded to the word they received? Stubborn unbelief. Yet in contrast, these Ninevites receive a five-word sentence from God. And how do they respond? In repentance and faith. Even the pagan king of Nineveh responds in this way. He hears the word, he believes the word, and he immediately begins to spread the word. What about Jonah's king? Well, hear the summary sentence regarding Jeroboam II, king of the northern tribes of Israel at that time, from 2 Kings 14. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of his predecessor, which he made Israel to sin. So the foreign pagan king hears five words from God and he leads his nation to repent and believe. The Israelite king hears several volumes full of words from God and he leads his nation to rebel against God. Oh, but it's even worse than that. Consider not just how much of God's word, not just how much of God's word the people of Israel had been given. Consider how many signs and wonders they had been giving attesting to the truth of that word. Most notably, the great signs and wonders witnessed by the first generation. From ten great plagues sent upon the Egyptians to the parting of the Red Sea to bread from heaven appearing every morning on the ground to a pillar of cloud by night, day, and a pillar of fire by night guiding them to the fruitful land of Canaan to a thunderous voice from atop a great shaking mountain And yet, even still, they stubbornly rebelled against him. They refused to believe and obey. But five words are spoken to the Ninevites, unaccompanied by even one sign or wonder. And they hear, they believe, and they begin to spread that word. Now, yes, a miracle had just taken place with the deliverance of Jonah, who emerged on the shore following three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, but that was five to six hundred miles away from Nineveh. 
Jonah had to travel a month from the shores of the Mediterranean to get to Nineveh. And there's no indication that the Ninevites knew anything about Jonah's deliverance. And that's the point. That's part of the indictment of Israel. Despite having witnessed no signs and wonders, and despite having received very little of God's word, what the Ninevites had received, they believed and obeyed, and they were delivered. While Israel refused and was destroyed. It wasn't many years later, in 722 BC, that God brought down harsh judgment upon the northern kingdom in which Jonah lived, giving them into the hands of the Ninevites and the rest of Assyria. Likewise, the southern kingdom of Israel was handed over to the Babylonians in 586 BC, and the great temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. And yet the generation that came afterward and who built the second temple were no different. And onto the scene comes another prophet from Galilee named Jesus, warning of the destruction of the new temple, warning of the final destruction of that nation, performing numerous signs and wonders, attesting to the truth of his word. And yet the religious leaders of Israel said that Jesus was doing these miracles by the power of a demon. And they demanded some other signs, give us more. But Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they, the Ninevites, repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Matthew chapter 12. Of course, they would go on to murder him, to bury him in a tomb from which he emerged three days later. But before they killed him, Jesus foretold that those who failed to receive his word before his death would not be swayed from their stubborn unbelief even after his resurrection from the dead. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 ends with this line. If... If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, that is, if they're not responding to the word that they have already been given, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And they weren't. The word began to spread that God the Son had become a man, Jesus Christ. That he had lived the perfect life of obedience that we have all failed to live. That he had died the death that our sins demand. That he rose in victory over sin and death so that all who call upon him for salvation, and turn from their evil way to be granted the promise of eternal life. But as this word of God spread, very few of the Jews of that day ever responded in repentance and faith. Like the Israelites of Jonah's day, it was the Gentiles who received the word of God spoken by this Galilean prophet, not Israel. And so in 70 AD, as Jesus had foretold, God destroyed that second temple in Israel, and the ruins remain to this day. The point is that we don't need signs and wonders. No amount of sign and wonders, no voice from heaven will ever be enough to change our unbelieving, impenitent hearts. We need God to give us ears to hear his word. It is through his word that he draws his people to himself. As Jesus said, 
My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. God's people hear God's voice in God's word, and they respond in repentance and faith, as the Ninevites. Hear the message and call of the book in Jonah, beloved. Have you responded to the word that has been given to you? Have you turned from your evil, self-serving ways, cried out to be delivered from your sin, that you may not be eternally destroyed? May those of us who have heard this word and believe this word now go and spread this word. And may we do so with confidence, knowing that we don't need to accompany it with signs and wonders and miracles. We don't need to accompany it with irrefutable philosophical arguments. We don't need to accompany it with answers to every question that might be raised. For Christ's sheep will hear his voice in his word. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. Romans 1.16 Beloved, trust in his word. Let us pray. Father, we praise you for sending your word to us. May we hear your word. May we believe your word. And may we rise and spread your word as we turn and fast from self-serving ways to instead love our neighbors as we love ourselves, as you pour your love into our hearts. Bless the preaching of your word. In and for the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.